So I have my friend Donald, and he comes into my office the other day, because the guys go out and they play disc golf every Monday night at 5.30. If you ever want to go, they're just out there at Waller's start at 5.30. And Donald comes in, I think on a Tuesday or something. Yeah, it's Tuesday. And he's telling me about it, and he's got, he says, I got 15 Frisbees. And I'm all, really? And apparently, he's, yeah, one goes straight, it curves right at the end. One goes straight, curves left. It's like all of these different Frisbees, he's got to do all these different things. Apparently, if you're into Frisbee golf, you might know this kind of stuff. Well, James, the guy that does our youth, shows up out there, and he's got one Frisbee. And he, beat, and he beats all of them. So, if you want to go to the tournament, you don't have to buy a whole bunch of Frisbees. Just show up with your one Frisbee. I will not bring my dog, because my dog would probably chase them all down and chew them all up, so... Although she would love to go. I mean, seriously, she would think we were there just for her all day. <gasps> They're throwing every fr- She would like, she would love it. I might just bring her. <laughs> Make you guys aim better for that goal. Anyway, uh, welcome to Element. If you're new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, on the bottom of the sermon notes... Uh, this week, there's a little QR code for Financial Peace University. Uh, if you are struggling financially or how to work out and live on a budget, uh, maybe emergencies keep you know overtaking your finances, you're using your credit card as your emergency fund, you know, all these things, go to FPU. Uh, it's, it's a great way to learn how to start budgeting your money and to work through these things. Again, uh, sign up right there. Uh, it starts on August 23rd, I believe, the week before. They're doing a free preview so you can get an idea of what it is. It's a nine-week course. And my wife and I took it. It's really, really good. So you guys should all go to that. Uh, I also have one more thing before we start. And that is if you know somebody who has like a plot of land that's like really long. I can be like 10 feet wide, but it's got to be a good half mile to a mile long. Something like this long piece of land. See, last year we do this thing on uh, on Halloween type time and we call it pumpkin killing because we want to do something you know manly we kill pumpkins and so we just think called pumpkin killing last year we, we, we planted a pumpkin patch did the same thing this year people are going to go out you're going to carve your pumpkins and after it's over you can then if you're so inclined launch your pumpkin and we have like a love we'll a trebuchet but we also have this pumpkin cannon and last year we had no idea how far the pumpkin cannon was going to shoot because we're in this piece of land we're like all right boom we're all and it, I mean, seriously, we could not believe how far it went. And so the place we did it last year isn't big enough. <laughs> so we need a place in it. So if you have a piece of land like this or you know somebody who has a piece of land like this that would let us launch pumpkins off on it, because in the end, we're probably not going to clean them up either because it's just going to land in a certain spot, and then next year they will have pumpkins. That's how it works. So if you know somebody or if you know a piece of land but you're too afraid to call them yourself, just let us know, and we will call them, or I'll have Manette call them, huh? <laughs> and we'll just use your name when we do it, so just, because we want to launch it, Jason's like, man, he goes, I've got a, I think I've got a way that I can launch them even farther this year, and I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> maybe in a couple weeks, we'll show you the video in case you have no idea what we're talking about, because it was just amazing, all right, why don't you stand on me, you're reading God's word, this is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And it says, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would understand what it means to have righteousness counted to us. To be a people who live in faith in you as our great God who has loved us and redeemed us. And that all of our lives be about you and your glory. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through the book of Genesis. This is actually week 26. We're a half a year in. We've only got a year left. 
Way to go us. Uh, now today I'm going to get a little theological on you, so it's not going to be, you know, sometimes I crack a lot of jokes in the messages as long as it goes with it, but today not so much. A lot of theology because I want you guys to really understand this whole idea of Genesis 15:6. There's a whole depth that comes along with it. And so we're going to spend the, higher, the entire day on this and how this verse has literally changed the landscape of what we believe about God. Now, the first thing you have to understand is that the true God must reveal himself. God cannot be figured out through science, through books, through your spirit guide, peyote, smoking your ganja. You're not going to find him out that way. No vision quest for God. God reveals himself about the truth who he is and that he is God and that we are not, that he is holy and we are not, and he is righteous and he is good, but he bestows those things on us as a gift. This is how Genesis kind of starts. God reveals himself. He makes everything. In Genesis chapter 3, you and I come into this and we sin and mar God's image in us and we fall. So the question becomes, well, then how are we supposed to be saved? You know, how do we have a relationship with God restored? How do we get true life? And how does all of this then happen? And the answer to that is faith. That's how it happens. And some people say, well, that's so wonderful. I've got a lot of faith. This is so good. I have, I have a lot of faith so I can save myself. No, that's not how faith actually works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Say, what, even my faith is a gift? So how do I earn God's favor? How do I earn my salvation? It is not possible. You didn't do it. It's a gift of God. That is the essence of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This verse goes and actually infects the rest of Scripture. You get to a little prophetic book called Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. And the book of Habakkuk, this harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Habakkuk starts with him whining about God, God, what's going on. God says, Habakkuk, shut up and trust me. And he says, I don't know if I want to trust you very much. And at the end of the book, finally, Habakkuk just says, okay, God, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to trust you. This is a lot like you and I in this. You know, Habakkuk is like, God, I know you've got a plan. Why don't you tell me the plan? And I just want to know. I'll tell you, you don't want to know the plan. We just all time, God, just tell me the plan. If you knew God's plan, you'd be like, I don't like that plan. God's like, I know you don't like it. That's why I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to work you around to get you where I need you to go. And this is the, the idea in this. And so God tells, back and tells God, God, the world's a terrible place. People are mean. What are you going to do about it? And God says, I'm going to take out everybody. In fact, I don't like that plan. I want plan B. I don't like plan A. Let's go with a different one. And so God says, you know, just trust me. Habakkuk, I know what I'm doing. This is like us in theology a lot where we're like, God, how do you save people? I want to know who you are. And God shows us in Scripture who he is, how he saves people. And God is always inconceivably good, but we don't understand it. And so sometimes we mistake his goodness for something else. How can we talk about election? We mistake his goodness for something else. It is because God is inconceivably good. So when I talk about salvation, it's always about how it rests in the hands of God, His calling, His seeking His children, and a lot of people have a problem with that. I think it comes down to an idea that we don't really trust God to be as good as He claims to be. We think God is not who He's truly shown Himself to be in the Scriptures. Especially like, oh, if there's a hell and somebody goes there, well, oh my goodness, God can't be as good as I think He is. That's because we lack faith and we lack righteousness. Habakkuk questions the goodness of God and his plan. And the great theme of Habakkuk, like the great theme of Genesis, like the great theme of the New Testament, is all faith. Faith is whereby God's people are to trust God and his goodness no matter what. When we don't understand, we still trust. Last year, we took a week and we looked through the book of Job. I know, it's like 40 chapters, one week. 
Woo. You know, it's not like Genesis where it's like 50 chapters, a year and a half. So, you know, when we, in the book of Job, Job comes and he has a lot of questions for who God is. And how does God answer Job's questions? He doesn't. He doesn't. He essentially, instead of answering Job's questions, he shows Job his own character. He says, Job, this is who I am. And you can have hope in me because I am good. God says it's not about your questions. It's about are you going to trust me? Because it's not our way or his way. It's just his way. And that teaches us faith. Habakkuk questions God and his timing just like Abraham. But in the end, he trusts God's promises just like Abraham does. Now, in, during the Magisterial Reformation, that's a big word for like Martin Luther, John Calvin, all those guys in there. During the Reformation, they define saving faith in three parts. Not necessarily in this order, but I will give them to you. Number one is the word they use is called notitia. Notitia. This is knowledge about the content of the gospel as Jesus taught it in the scriptures. Simply, faith needed an object and our object is defined by our knowledge of it. Today, people will say to you, well, this is God, or that's God, or everybody goes to heaven, or all kinds of opinions. This is why God must reveal himself. We didn't know the truth. And the scriptures point to the truth, and the scriptures point to Jesus, because it's all about him. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is truth. The scriptures are true. By them we have knowledge. The second word that they used was the word ascensus. This is the intellectual acceptance of the truth about Jesus, where we see our lives and we realize we are complete knuckleheads and all of our decisions lead to complete despair and loss of hope. And so we receive what God has done. We stop fighting the truth. We stop resisting the truth and receive it because it is true. And the third word they use is the word fiducia. And this is personal reliance on Jesus and the truth of his gospel. We trust in Jesus as he has revealed himself. These three things go together and they infect how we live our lives, our sexuality, our diet, our budget, our friendships, our mouth. Because if faith doesn't become practical, it is useless. It is meant to be lived out in our lives in a practical way. This is why information alone doesn't save anybody. Jesus tells you this in Mark chapter 5, also in Luke chapter 4. In James 2.19, it says, even the demons believe. The demons know who Jesus is better than we do, and yet they're lost because they didn't follow. Their knowledge didn't lead to anything. See, we've got to get the right information, not all the crazy stuff that half the college professors want to teach you just because they have tenure. See, in our world today, every two years, our information doubles. And it's usually contradictory when it comes to things that are spiritual. That's why when we hear the real truth, we embrace it. Because our natural reaction is to shut out the true God and go with what feels good rather than what is actually true. See, the scriptures can be academic, but they're not just academic. They can be moral, but they're not just moral. It's all pointing to the person of Christ and that there is a God who is actually in charge of everything. Information, until it is practiced as faith, does not bring transformation. God's truth has to change us. Anybody ever take a Bible as literature class in college? Anybody ever take one? Okay, for the three of us that took one. Uh, the, the Bible as literature class in, in college, most of them are taught by professors who are atheists. They memorize half the Bible. It has not changed them at all, but they do the Bible as literature, and they just totally destroy it because the information has not changed them. This is why the great theme of the scriptures woven all throughout it, especially verses like Genesis 15:6 and Habakkuk 2:4. These verses are lit by God and they let us know that righteous lives by faith. 
These verses explode in the ministry of the New Testament. Even Martin Luther, the great reformer, was born again by the Holy Spirit's illumination of these verses. Habakkuk 2.4, God is speaking, and when you pick up the scriptures, God is speaking to us. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed of it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's a clear reference to Genesis 15.6, and it sets up two kinds of people who live throughout human history. If you want to boil people down to two types, these are the two types. Number one, the first is people who trust in themselves and the ability to save and rule over themselves. We call this pride. Some people think they are smarter than everybody else. Some people think they are smarter than they actually are. You probably know some people like that. Maybe, maybe a married one. I don't know. You know. I think my wife feels like that about me all the time. She, I think I'm smarter than I actually am. Some people think they're more enlightened than everybody else, more wise than everybody else. God has hard words for people like that. God says, I'm smarter than you and you should trust me. I mean, it is bizarre to me that in our world today, when someone claims to be an atheist, we automatically think that they're unbiased and they're just seeking out the truth. I don't think so. An atheist has a tremendous amount of faith in things they cannot prove. No life after death, the absence of God. You've got a lot of trust in the three pounds of meat between your ears. Because I will tell you, the three pounds of meat between my ears convinces me I need to cry at Lilo and Stitch every time I watch it. Because it's me to laugh that, that Will Ferrell is actually funny. And, and I don't think he is that funny. But for some reason, I, I laugh at him all, all the time. Not that you should. I'm, I'm just saying. You know, the second group of people come in. I mean, we can't trust our brains out there. The second group of people come in, and they are those who trust God and his ability to save and rule over us as a gracious gift, that he gives us righteousness as a gift. And despite all of our many sins, we receive this with humble faith. Because at the bottom of our lives is faith in something. You know, it's, it's scientific method, your mind, or it's going to be in Jesus. And the simple question is, who is more trustworthy than Jesus? Jesus, God comes to earth, lives in human flesh, dies, rises, never sins. And God says the righteous will live by faith because they trust me. And the self-righteous only trust themselves. In Habakkuk, God says, you know what, Habakkuk, you can trust me or you can trust me. Everything else is in the details. When he talks to Abraham, Abraham, you can trust me or you can trust me. Everything else is just going to be in the details. 600 years after the book of Habakkuk, a guy named Saul is affected by the words of Genesis 15:6 into Habakkuk. And these are some of the most quoted verses he uses when he talks to people in his New Testament writings. Saul, who becomes Paul, is the guy who, after living many years as a self-righteous man, he has given eyes to see and a heart to love the truth of the gospel of grace. See, Paul is a legalist. You know, most people today, they are legalists. They're committed to morality and religion and spirituality. Say, well, God's good and and moral, therefore I will be good and moral, and therefore I will be on God's team. Now, Paul thought all that until he met the real God, Jesus. And after he did, he starts to call himself the chief among sinners. His entire view about him and his own self-righteousness changes. Now, most people think sin is just something horrible, like murder, or you live in Sisquak, or you got a mullet. You drive a Pinto, you're in a bowling league, you like country music. Have I offended everybody yet? I got all of you? All right. We think, you know, it's something terrible. But it can be anything that is disobedience to God. I mean, in the New Testament, you look and you see the most awful sinners are the most moral and the most religious. And they killed Jesus. I mean, how weird is that? You had some of these religious people who, if the woman walked by, they would close their eyes, they would look at the ground, they would never look up because they didn't want to sin by lusting after a woman. And they would run into poles, and they'd run into buildings, and they'd fall into holes, and they were called the bruised and the bleeding. Literally, because of, that's what they would do. You had other religious people who were so religious, when they got uh, spices, they would count out, Oh, I got some dill. I'm going to count out nine for me, one for God. They would tie that of their spice rack. I mean, can you get any more religious than that? 
And yet these are the guys who turn around and they kill Jesus. The worst guys, the most moral and the most spiritual. I mean, the, and this is the idea, the worst sin is pride because it comes from self-righteousness. When people say, well, I'm a good person, I usually think you have no idea how good you've got to be. No idea. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or how about James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You've got to be pretty good. Open to Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. See, there is no sliding scale in this. There, there is not good guys and okay guys and acceptable guys and kind of bad guys and really bad guys. You just got two. You got Jesus and everybody else. Two categories. Well, what about salvation? Well, in Romans 1.6, it says, You are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So God calls. But look at Romans 1.16. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is powerful. It lets us become children of God. It brings us salvation. How does that happen? Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. Trust Jesus. The gospel becomes powerful in us. It takes us into being part of the family of God. We belong to him. We just trust him. Righteousness comes as a gift. Takes away our condemnation, gives us love. Takes away our sin, gives us righteousness. Takes away our death and brings us life. Paul, after meeting Jesus, walks away from his effort to try and merit righteousness on his own and simply embraces Jesus by faith, this righteousness that Jesus gave to him as a free gift. Open to the book of Galatians, a couple chapters to your right. Galatians is a whole book about this law and grace and what this means and and what it looks like. In Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to start in the middle of a verse. I know, we don't normally talk like that, but it's okay. You can handle it. You can read it all in context later. The whole book is kind of like context. You've got to read the whole book. Galatians 2, starting in verse 16, Paul says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Go to chapter 3, verse 11. Paul bringing this all together. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There it is again. In this section, Paul explains the purpose of the law. God's demands on our conduct are indeed good, but simply impossible for us to ever do because they require a life of perfection. The law is good, but we are bad. So God's laws reveal how sinful we actually are, how perfect Jesus is, and it sends us running into his arms to trust him for our salvation. See, our culture lives under this myth today that we're just going to give it our best shot. Oh, if you're just really good, then everything kind of works out. No. If you live your life trying to observe the law, one of three things is going to happen to you. Number one, you will do better than other people. And when you do, you'll become very proud and self-righteous. You'll be very, very moral. Because moral people that do it all on their own just trust in themselves. We want to be God of our own little kingdom. And if you are able to lead a moral life on your own, chances are you'd begin to commit the worst side of sin of all, which is arrogant, self-righteous pride. This is why Jesus says that the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the drunkards and the sinners, they're all entering the kingdom of God ahead of the religious people because they understood what their sin was and they didn't have it all together and needed to trust God. Now, most of us aren't going to do better than other people. So the second thing that happens if we just try to follow the law is you become sorely depressed. Because what will happen is you will get frustrated. You will begin to see God as an absent landlord who has a list that you're never going to get done. He's never pleased. You're always depressed, but you keep on trying. Or, number three, you will walk away from faith, come back, walk away, and come back. walk, And you live in this cycle of guilt and shame. 
Because the purpose of the law is to show you you. You throw your hands up and say, I can't do it. Exactly. That is why Jesus said, I did it. Well, I'm not good enough. Exactly. Jesus is good enough. We stop trusting ourselves and we start trusting him. Stop trusting our own wisdom and our own efforts and we trust him because we are not good gods. It is silly to think that we are more loving and more wise and more patient than Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, Verse 35 to 39, it says this, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and then he quotes Haggai chapter 2, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And then he quotes Habakkuk, But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Literally, this is translated, and are saved. The author of Hebrews implores people, you know, you're going to undergo trials in your life. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. The Christian life is about trusting Jesus until we see him face to face. Every day we trust with all that we are because our lives are going to change day by day by day. And we bend our knee every day to him. Hard times and good times, whether it's your job, your health, your kids, you're single, you're married, whatever it is, we do not shrink back. We trust and follow until we see him face to face. Our lives are like 10 minutes into the movie. And I'll tell you, if you, if you leave before the end, you're never going to see the most beautiful thing ever. Too many times people say, well, I tried God and God didn't work. Really? Really? You look at like Job in the book of Job. And he's at this place where he's, he's in a dung heap. He's got boils on his skin. He's scraping them off with shards of pottery. And he's got this wonderful supportive wife who sees this happening and says, curse God and die. It's like, thank you that I married you. You're, I'm so happy now. And he's got these friends that come alongside him and they go, you know what? This is all your fault. What'd you do? And it wasn't. He didn't do this. And the thing is, this is what Job says after all this takes place. Job says, even if God kills me, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. And because what else are you going to do? See, we just want it easy, but God wants faithful people, and he wants to grow us into maturity. And this is the great beauty about God and the gospel. Not only is he big enough to get you out of trouble, he is also big enough to get you into trouble. Because sometimes he wants us in places where we grow. Exercising faith works like a muscle. And so you exercise it. Imagine you're getting married. You know, you get married, it takes a lot of faith to continually just serve and love the other person and let all of your pride go and stop holding grudges and actually serve Jesus first by serving your mate in your marriage. It becomes very hard. Every time you make rent, every time you change a job or you buy a house and your faith begins to grow, maybe you decide, I'm going to teach a class. Or maybe you decide, I want to be a gospel community leader. And you start, all these things make your faith begin to grow. Now, they started talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther once said, and this is kind of my paraphrase, that many people are in a ministry to pay God back. Because, oh, God saved us, so I'm going to work really hard to pay him back. And one time, Martin Luther was a monk. He's a teacher. He's one of the smartest men of his day. He believed and taught that salvation or a loving relationship with God was something we must work hard to earn and to merit. He had a lawyer's mind, so he's always looking for ways to defend himself against his own humanity. And he realized that God has an airtight case against every single one of us. I mean, the real truth, if you looked at it objectively, is that humanity's case shows that we are evil. So subsequently, Luther spent much of his life, he agonizes over his thoughts and his actions and his words and his, and his deeds, all while continually aware that he is imperfect. He begins to deny himself a bunch of earthly pleasures to seek to pay God back through suffering. He lives in a little cell. 
He ate sparsely. He vowed never to get married. You know, so far that he became a priest or a monk. So no wife, no kids, no sex. He's like, sin requires punishment, so then therefore I will punish myself. He sleeps on the floor. He ate terrible food. He had intestinal problems the rest of his life because of it. Some monks even did self-flagellation where they would whip themselves because, oh, you know, this is terrible. I'm going to whip myself because I'm going to punish myself. I think this is really interesting today, too, because we have a lot of teenagers today who cut themselves. And I think there's this thing where we realize, you know, sin requires a sacrifice of some sort, and people cut themselves. This is why Jesus is the answer to all of this. Because Jesus did pay for all of that. That's why we leave things in his hands. Now, Luther's a Catholic. As a monk, before you started to work, you would confess your sins to a priest, be absolved, and you would go to work. But Luther's mind worked so much overtime, he spent so much time in the confessional confessing his sins that other monks thought he was just lazy because he'd never go out to work. He'd spend all day in there. He'd, he'd confess his, his thoughts and he'd confess his deeds and then his motive for the deeds and the motive for confessing and the motive for the motive for confessing and just kept going over it and he'd spend all day in this little confessional. But he's not, he wasn't trying to get out of work. His legal mind is just being consistent with this faulty theology, being painfully aware that an imperfect person will forever be unfit to be in the presence of a holy God because we will not do everything in the right way in the right time for the right reasons. So he starts to study the scriptures. And he goes to Genesis 15.6, leads him to the book of Psalms, leads him to Romans 1.17, which then leads him to Habakkuk. And these verses that we are looking at this morning, and the same spirit that, that brought about the writing of Scripture illuminates Luther's understanding. And this is what he says after he understands this. He says, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, He through who faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Martin Luther understood and followed the gospel of Jesus Christ because of Genesis 15.6, the book of Psalms, Romans 1.17, and Habakkuk 2.4. All of these things coming together. And God ignites his understanding, which fuels the reforming of the church that continues all the way into our day. And it was birthed 3,500 years ago when Moses was writing this, this account of Abraham. It's 2,600 years ago in the book of Habakkuk, 2,000 years ago in the book of Romans, that it is a God who gives faith and righteousness to his people. This is the revelation of God that has changed the world. And it is the same God that continues to work today. Jesus comes, our God, as a man to take our sins upon himself. He lives a life of faith. God is good beginning to end and Christianity hinges on Genesis 15:6 and he Abraham believed the Lord and he God counted it to him Abraham as righteousness. This is simple but it is everything. If you don't trust God, who do you trust? I asked you last week, do you cling to God's promises and trust him that he actually is for you and that he loves you and he wants the best for you? Do you really believe that God is good and that God is trustworthy and that you should actually follow him? And I told you last week, it is not sight that leads to faith. It is faith that leads to sight, understanding what God has done. I mean, how do you become righteous? You believe God. You have faith. You trust. And then when we live this righteous life, it acts itself out in acts of obedience, in trusting God's promises, doing what is best for God and for those around us. Genesis 15.6 goes to Habakkuk 2.4, and it explodes through human history. Open to Romans chapter 4. I'll show you something else as we wind this up. In Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 1, this verse here explodes as well. Romans 4, verse 1 starts like this. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So how did he become a friend of God? For Abraham was, for if Abraham was justified by works, well, if he tithed and, you know, went to Mecca or channel like a Buddhist, whatever that is, he has something to boast about, but not before God, because none of those things mean anything. For what does the scripture say? And if only more Christians would ask themselves that question, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How do you get God to love you? You don't. He already does. That's the answer. And you can enter into relationship with him and live and follow him and his guidance all of your life. The Old Testament is not outdated. The New Testament explains the old so that we wouldn't think that Jesus was starting a new religion, but showing us the trueness of God and what he always intended. You know, do you and I believe that this God is actually good? I mean, this is the idea. When, when God sends Abraham out and says, look at the stars in the sky, you know, you are one of those stars that he spoke about metaphorically, you know, this is what the offspring are going to be like, are the stars in the heavens. That's you and me. It's a wonderful thing. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, it says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, there's, there it is again, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, last week I said, you know, are you saved by works? And I think people misunderstood what I meant. I said, yes, but not yours. You're saved by Jesus' works, his imputed righteousness given to us. Jesus did a work on the cross, died, rose from the dead, and that is then given to us. He does the work, we reap the benefit. This means for you and I, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been, what family you come from, who you know, who you don't know, who likes you, who doesn't like you. It matters that we trust Christ for what he did and will continue to do through us. He places us in a new family, Abraham's family, and we become brothers and sisters. We are in God's family. We become heirs of the promise. There's a lot of people who say that, that they trust God, but they live like they don't. You know, there's a lot of people who trust in everything that is not God. But we are to be those who trust in Jesus, and that infuses our lives, and it changes how we actually live. Because good works don't save you, but people who believe in Jesus should be doing good works. Because we should do the things that our God showed us what we should be doing, and live in such a way that everybody else sees those things. And this is the most amazing thing. If you have experienced this in your life, I will tell you, it is amazing, the things that God does. And it all comes down to this idea that it is about humility, Self-righteous, proud people do not humble themselves before Christ. This is one of the reasons every week we come to communion because it is this place where we realize this is humility that our God came and died and rose for us so that we can be brought into his family so that we can be a people who are righteous through faith because of what he has done. And that's why you come and you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Your mind's of his blood that was shed for you and I. And this is only done in humility. Self-righteous people can't be like, oh, yes, Jesus died for me, but I'm working it out. You know, that's not how it works. It's all him. It's all him. This is how the righteous live by faith, given to us by a great God who has sought us and bought us and brought us home. The band's going to come up. And as they do, do a couple songs. We invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if, you, if you've never thought about this and understanding that it is not what you do that makes you righteous, it is Jesus that makes you righteous, well, they'd love to talk to you about that, introduce you to who Jesus Christ is. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And my wife made cookies last night, and they're in the back. I only ate three last night, and that's because she forced me. 
there, there in the back, uh, grab some cookies and some food, talk to some other people. I would love for you guys to have this discussion this week with some of your friends. Hopefully you're in a GC and you talk about this. If not, maybe grab some friends this week and, and talk about the, the humility that it takes to truly believe and worship and love Jesus, you know, and how to live a life that, that honors him because he has given righteousness to us. And then what that in turn is supposed to look like. Guys, I'll tell you, God is more gracious and more loving than we could ever imagine. And he has loved us in such ways that I don't think we will ever fully understand. Because, because of his righteousness and his goodness has been given to us, we can then in turn be a people who show that to everybody else around us as well. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us and remind us how to be a people of childlike faith. Father, people who stop trusting so much in ourselves and what we can do and what we can accomplish, but simply trusting in you and what you have already accomplished. We ask that you would help us to set aside all the things that, that crowd for space in our hearts for you. And that we would simply have you first and foremost in our lives. And God, have that humility that we live before you be lived out in front of everybody we come into contact with, that our worship of you would be day by day by day, no matter where we are, no matter what we do. And that you above will be honored, that we would lift you up, because it's all about you. I mean, you don't save us because we're so good. You save us because you are so good. So today, have us begin to live in a childlike faith that honors you, the God that has saved us. Then have us begin to honor your image and those around us as well, loving those around us as you have loved us, so that we can always lift up you and your graciousness. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.